Welcome back. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. Today we have Joseph Lawwell joining us. Thank you so much for being on, Joseph. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So to start us off, can you give us a little bit um, of your background with the church? I don't know. Have you have you been a member your whole life and like that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I have been a member my whole life. So I was born in the church. My parents, um, both of their parents um, were converted when they were young. So my parents are, are essentially both long, lifelong members. Um, so I was born initially in England uh, and we kind of moved all over the place and, and ended up in, in the States. Um, so I, I followed my family along, along with that. So yeah, I've been a lifelong member. Um, often, uh, not often, but but there's there's uh, some of the best apologists or, or people who, who um, are very converted to the church and do a lot of work in in defending the church have had some like really um, powerful, uh, impactful faith crises, right? That have kind of driven them to, to want to defend the church and, and help others through them. Uh, that's not been my experience. Um, I've, I've not had that, that sort of, so I, my, my, my um, attempts to help defend the church have been less pastoral and more intellectual, <laughs> um, if that makes sense, because I, I, um, I haven't been through that kind of emotional journey that many people have been through. Um, uh, because yeah, I, I, the, the church has been just been a, a really solid part of my life, uh, my whole life, right? If that makes sense. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of uh, that's it's kind of a pretty pretty mundane background in, in the church, really. So as you you mentioned that you were so you were born in the church, what are maybe some either some experience, maybe some insights that kind of got you to the point where you're like, okay, hey, this is this is what I'm going to keep believing and keep striving for. Yeah, so I mean, I have had some um, some formative spiritual experiences, right? Um, and and they've uh, allowed me to kind of undergo the conversion that makes taking the gospel very seriously possible. But I think for me, a lot of what I find very appealing about the church, very comforting, and very um, well, what what, what uh, has has guided me often is actually the intellectual side of the church. I, I, I find very appealing the worldview that the church offers uh, at an intellectual level. And that's not to say that, I, again, I don't have a spiritual conversion as well, uh, but that's uh, actually a lot of what drives um, my desire to kind of develop this worldview and defend it is just the fact that I think it's wonderful. I think it's so intellectually robust and I just want to share that with people. I, I mean, I just, I, you know, I have a real love of learning um, and so it's a very exciting prospect to me, the fact that we have such a powerful um, way of looking at the world to offer to the world. And I really want to share that with people, um, you know, and, and, I, and maybe that's not always great. I, I, I think I also need to develop a desire to bring people to Christ independently of that, right? Because that's, that's really the goal. Um, but a lot of what drives me really is this really, this excitement about just the, just the, um, the knowledge that we have, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's definitely a lot of compelling reasons to believe. And um, one of the things that I, I love is you have this amazing YouTube channel called LDS Philosopher. And can uh, you LDS tell our... our actually, sorry. Um, LDS Philosophy. Okay, thanks yeah, for clarifying that. Because, because Jeffrey Thane has a great blog called LDS Philosopher, but that is that is different. Uh, but he's great too. Check him out too. <laughs> okay. uh, you've had him on. So LDS yeah. Philosophy. Okay. Yep. Can you kind of give us a little bit of background behind that YouTube channel and tell our viewers a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, I'm really interested in philosophy. That's I'm a I'm a student in philosophy currently, um, and so that's those are kind of my two loves: uh, the, the the kind of gospel, the gospel and and philosophy. And so 
uh, I've made an attempt to kind of synthesize that to some extent. So we've had some great philosophy in the history of the church, um, you know, even very early on with figures like Orson Pratt. And, and Joseph Smith had a lot to say that was of great relevance philosophically. And then more recently, people like David Paulson and Blake Osler. Uh, and so, but I just, as I said, I'm really interested in the worldview and, and particularly in the philosophical questions. And I think that the gospel has a great deal of potential to answer philosophical questions really, really well. And so the, the channel is just an attempt at both to give some philosophical defenses of the church and also just to get members of the church more familiar and comfortable with philosophy. I think philosophy has a lot to, uh, to offer us uh, in the way that we look at the gospel and the gospel again has a lot to offer philosophy. And so I, I would just, I would love to be able to defend the church on philosophical grounds. It's not something that's done explicitly a whole lot that we, we often uh, are embroiled in historical and scriptural debates and conversations and scholarly work. And that's obviously uh, of, of utmost importance, uh, but there's not as much being done in philosophy. And I, I just think that's a shame. So um, I've, it's, a, it's a small challenge currently because I've, I've not had a great deal, unfortunately, of time to devote to it, you know, with a, um, a wife and a young daughter and, and then being a full-time student. Uh, but currently I think I've got three videos up, uh, one on the philosophical contributions of Joseph Smith. So some of the things that he believed and that um, we believe is a consequence of that, that are of philosophical importance. Uh, a video uh, of one of one of what will be two videos on the Kalam cosmological argument, which is just an argument that kind of poses a philosophical challenge to our worldview. And then I've got a debate that I had with a, a, a Calvinist um, on philosophical issues. Uh, and then I've also got two more videos that'll come out soon as, as soon as I can find the time to edit them. Uh, one with Tarek Lacour on, on the philosophy of mind and one with Robert Boyle and a really good video on um, some critiques of, um, of Sola Scriptura. Cool. I love that. Well, make sure to check out Joseph's YouTube channel. I think it can be very helpful. I know for me, I took a logic class a while back and just understanding some of those insights has helped me a lot as I, I hear attacks about Joseph Smith and just kind of being able to frame um, an approach to dealing with certain issues has been very helpful. Um, so one of the first kind of things I wanted to discuss with you is epistemology, which to my knowledge is, is the study of knowledge. And what are your thoughts on Latter-day Saint epistemology? And can you help us understand maybe what some of the various attacks are on our epistemology? Yeah, so I think our epistemology, so yeah, as you said, epistemology is the study of, of knowledge broadly. And so that often means a study as well of truth and of justification, because philosophers uh, traditionally uh, there's some nuance to this, but um, have, have conceived of knowledge as being justified true belief. And so the question is often, what does it mean for something to be true? And what does it mean for something to be, uh, for a belief to be justified? So I think our, our, our epistemology is very heavily revelatory. Uh, to my knowledge, it's the most heavily revelatory of any kind of major Western religion. Um, and, and I would say even of, of Eastern religions, I I'm not familiar with any that, that kind of lean into revelation as heavily as we do. So that is, I think, uh, a blessing. <laughs> I mean, it, it's true, so I think it's good. But, um, you know, also, um, I, I think it provides a very strong, I think there are very good reasons to think this is the best way to think about religion. Uh, but a lot of people think it's very problematic. As I said, it's, if, if we're the only major religion that, that um, relies on a very heavily revelatory epistemology, then obviously there are reasons other people don't accept that. There are arguments that they make. So I think, um, there are three 
uh, kind of very closely related uh, objections that people will give to a revelatory epistemology. And I think also three very close, well, uh, three distinct ways of responding to the problem that non Latter day Saints take, right? So, like three approaches to epistemology that, that kind of follow from rejecting the, the revelatory epistemology. So, the three critiques um, in brief uh, one, you'll hear often, particularly evangelical Christians, although not exclusively, they'll make a biblical case as to why revelation shouldn't be the foundation of our, of our faith. So particularly they'll cite verses like Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it, right? And they'll say, well, that, that shows that we can't rely on feelings, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's often how people will describe the LDS epistemology as being based on feelings. So they'll say things like, yeah, the, the Bible tell us, tells us things like feelings aren't reliable. We, have, we should really focus on um, scripture, for example, they'll say is, is really the way we should go. Um, Yes, so this this critique often leads, not, not exclusively, but often leads into the, the idea that really the Bible is the basis of our epistemology. Um, as such people are often inerrantists. It's not clear to me whether, so this is not like particularly common amongst academic criti criti uh, critics of, of the church. This is a pretty lay level um, attack. And the reason I think that's true is it's not clear that it's really possible for a Christian to accept this view, a non-LDS Christian to accept this view. I mean, first of all, it's not a great exegesis of, the, of Jeremiah 17, 9. Um, but I mean, so like, you know, as such people committed to saying that, for example, Isaiah, all that he wrote, which they have to say comes straight from God if they're inerrantists, does, does Isaiah have to have received that like straight from the, the literal mouth of an angel, right? So that there's no worry about, about this um, being revelation or feelings, right? Um, it seems very implausible to me to say that all of the Old Testament prophets in what they wrote got that from a literal mouthpiece, right? literal audible um, words, right? It seems much more plausible, just even given the accounts we have to say, oh, that they received these by revelation. Uh, so if, if, you, if you make a biblical case against revelation, like in principle, that seems like a real problem. Um, and, you know, and, and of course, it's a separate question of like, how do we come to accept the Bible? On what grounds do we justify accepting the Bible, which then can form the basis of our epistemology? Um, so that's, that's one kind of criticism. But I think it's not a particularly serious one. Um, you know, th there might be more serious formulations of it, but I think that in that formulation, which is often the way you'll see it, it's not particularly serious. A second critique uh, is that feelings are subjective and so unreliable. It can't grant knowledge because they're subjective. And that's, um, we can talk about this a bit more, but that's a very um, loose way of putting it. And so it's not a particularly sophisticated argument in that form. A little bit more sophisticated is the argument that, um, you know, how, how do we distinguish veridical, that is uh, real or true revelation from delusion or maybe deception by the devil, right? Um, so how do we distinguish between actual revelation or actual spiritual experiences and, and things that aren't spiritual experiences that, that may look like it? Um, so that's kind of the second criticism. Uh, and the third, uh, so, so sorry, that, that one is often um, made both by skeptics or atheists and actually by other Christians who prefer generally an evidentialist uh, epistemology. So they'll want to do things like give arguments for the existence of God in philosophy, or maybe make a historical case for the resurrection and say, you know, we can show historically that, that Christ, the, the historical evidence says it's very likely that Christ rose from the dead. If that's true, then Christianity is likely true. So those are kind of evidentialist approaches to faith. Um, and so, that, yeah, that's often, uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian and you make this sort of argument about subjectivity, that's often the route you'll take. But also atheists will make the argument and conclude that revelation, you know, that, that religion is false altogether. And then finally, um, 
the, the, the last critique, and this again comes from people who are evidentialists or from, from non-religious people, they say, they'll say things like, a lot of people claim to receive revelation, right? Muslims and Catholics claim revelation. So how do you know that yours is right and theirs isn't, right? And so that, that's, that's closely related to the second critique, but it is a distinct one, I think, that you'll see. Um, yeah, and so th those are the three kind of main challenges, I think, to the idea of spiritual experiences forming the basis of, a, of an epistemology. So I guess this is kind of in regards to like the second question, but how would you respond to that? Because I imagine, I'm, I'm a psychology major, so I imagine someone might be like, maybe someone's just in a good mood, so they think they feel the spirit, or maybe someone's a schizophrenic, or I can think of a various um, arguments kind of with just kind of ha having a frenzied mind and such. How can we respond to that? Yeah, and, and, and understand that we actually do have to make this claim sometimes, right? So I think in the church, we are um, ecumenical in the sense that we can say that God does speak to people outside the church. But there are also definitely, it's definitely true that there are people who make claims to revelation, uh, who conclude things that are incompatible with our view, right? So that there have to be times we have to say, no, what you felt was not the spirit, right? And so it's true that there seems to be some level of um, difficulty in discerning, right? There are people who, who, yeah, who feel this heightened emotion and say, that's the spirit um, in certain settings that we say, well, that, that can't be based on what we know. Um, and so, yeah, so the, the, I think this is a, this is not an unserious challenge, right? We, we ought to take this, I think, at least more seriously than like the Jeremiah 17, 9 kind of challenge. So to, to kind of unpack the problem a little bit, I think generally pe people will say uh, feelings are subjective and therefore unreliable, but they don't, at least not in a, a kind of formal sense, mean subjective. I think there's some, and it's very common, I'm not saying this is like a, a you know, a, a sign of ignorance or anything. It's a very common what a kind of conflation of what it means to be subjective or to be objective. So often what people mean when they say that something is subjective is they mean something like relative. And by objective, they mean um, fact of the matter. Although often when pressed, they'll mean something more like uh, empirically testable or verifiable. So to give an example, um, if asked a question like, is this painting beautiful? Many people say, well, that's subjective, right? There's not a fact of the matter as to whether this painting is beautiful. It's up to the individual person. Um, and, and that's contested actually in philosophy too. Some people think there are objective, in that sense, objective aesthetic um, values. But um, that's often what people mean. They'll, they'll say, you know, your feelings are subjective uh, in that sense. It's relative somehow. Um, and so, so kind of etymologically, that's not really what the term means. I, I, I don't think it's wrong to say that subjective can mean relative because that is often what, that's how it's kind of come to be understood. Uh, but actually, interestingly, in the case of, of art, of aesthetics, so for like, um, I mean, I don't, this shouldn't be, I don't want this to be super esoteric or anything, but um, Kant, Emmanuel Kant, right, a very famous um, uh, early modern philosopher, or well, kind of late modern philosopher, um, had this view of aesthetic taste where he said, um, aesthetic judgments are universally subjectively valid. Uh, and what he just means by that is that uh, that basically, in, in the way we understand the term today, there are objective, uh, you know, uh, aesthetic norms, right? You can be right or wrong about whether something is beautiful. But he says universally subjectively valid because it says it's universal, it's true of everyone, but it's subjective in the sense of being in a subject that is like a person. Um, uh, and so he thinks it's a fact of the matter, right? But he says universally subjectively valid. And so that's kind of the older um, sense of the term subjective. That's it's still used in philosophy today, but people don't generally mean that in, in everyday discourse. So subjective in that sense yeah just means in a subject or in a person whereas objective means in an object uh, and so in that sense of the term 
um, you know, it's it's possible to say that revelation is subjective, right? It, it takes place within a person, right? So if I if I have a, a personal revelation, so obviously, you know, if an angel comes, a visitation, we can call that a, a revelation, but that can be interpersonal. But if I receive an impression of some kind from, from the spirit, it's subjective in the sense that it took place within me. But that doesn't mean there's no fact of the matter, right? So this is, I think, people kind of conflate this and aren't super clear on the criticism being made here. So, uh, you know, if I have a pain in my arm, that's, uh, you know, like a somatic sense, right? A sense of my body. That's that's subjective. It takes place within a subject. Uh, but there's a fact of the matter. It's either true or false that I'm experiencing pain, right? And so that's the same, the same claim we would make about revelation. We either are actually... Um, feeling the spirit right or having some sort of religious experience or that's not true or it's a delusion or a deception of the devil right that's, there's a fact of the matter so that's why i think that kind of it's subjective and therefore unreliable is is an unsophisticated critique because it's not clear on this point so i said the, the more sophisticated formulation of this argument is you know how do we discern that and that i, that I think is a, that's, that's something we should take seriously how do we discern veridical religious experiences from non-veridical ones, right? So from deceptions and delusions, um, like heightened emotion. Maybe we think that's the spirit sometimes. Uh, and that's that's a big question. That's the question for all of us to look at um, and, and study very closely in our own experiences and in scripture. I, I, I want to give some kind of hint at, at a direction for how to answer that. So I think for one thing, we can say, yes, there's a, there's a phenomenally unique um, a revelation or spiritual experiences are, are, are or can be phenomenally unique. And what I mean by that is uh, the way they feel is distinct from other things. So the fact that you know, it, maybe it would be a claim about psychology in some way, right? So the feeling that I have in certain kinds of revelation, because there are lots of different kinds of spiritual experiences, but the feeling that I have, let's say in my mind, um, when I receive a revelation, uh, we're going to claim uh, in some forms is distinct from the feeling of just heightened emotion. Right. So that means that it is in principle possible to discern. But then, you know, how do we discern? Right. So some people uh, may have never really felt a spiritual impression of this kind. Uh, and so they only associate the idea of receiving a, a spiritual experience with, say, heightened emotion. Right. So for that person, they can't really it seems like it's hard to say that they know that what they're feeling isn't a spiritual experience because they have nothing to compare against. They've only ever felt this and they associate it with spirit. Um, and so I think. So, okay, so, so one, one approach, one, it's not one I accept actually, but one, one approach that some people take is to say that it's kind of, there's like an, um, we have like special knowledge, special insight into what is revelation, right? So maybe we can draw some parallels to like Descartes idea that like clear and distinct ideas. So he wanted to say um, something like two plus two is four is totally indubitable. We could not be wrong about that. Or, you know, his, his initial, um, claim his initial kind of example of this is or the important one is i think therefore i am right i can clearly and distinctly perceive that truth and i couldn't be wrong about it um and, and so maybe some people want to say we have something like an indubitable access to what's revelation and what's not um it's not clear how that would be true uh, kind of to parallel the sorts of examples that descartes wants to give um and ultimately i just think that's not true i, I don't think we have an infallible sense of what's um what's revelation and what isn't so I think the way that we go about it is kind of holistic, right? And so kind of looking at the whole picture. Um, so let's let's give the example of, let's say um, that you were deaf, right? Uh, so you couldn't hear. So you had your other sense modalities you could see and taste and smell and touch. Um, and people often say we have five senses. That's kind of the five standard ones. We actually have more than that, right? So we do have somatic senses. If I feel a pain in my arm, 
I'm not touching that pain, but I, I still, that's a, that's a sense modality. Um, but let's, let's pretend, you know, let's, let's talk as if we have five, let's say um, I can't, I couldn't hear initially. And then I, I, I come to hear, right? So I, I, I am able to hear after a certain amount of time. Um, you know, how, how do I know that that sense modality is reliable? How do I know that um, when I hear things, uh, it's telling me true things about the world, basically? Well, one way I could is let's, well, I, I, you know, I believe that I can see things and it's veridical, right? And everyone believes that unless there's some, some challenge to that, like um, uh, hallucination, right? In a particular individual, we all believe that our sight tells us true things about the world. So when I begin to be able to hear, I can confirm those things. So let's say I, it seems like I'm hearing something on my right. And I, well, I don't know if I can trust my ears yet. I, I've never used them before. This is new to me. And so I can look to my right and I can see there's something over there and it seems to be producing the sound, right? So I can confirm it independently, right? With my eyes. Uh, and so over time, you'll have all sorts of confirmatory experiences that confirm to you, yep, my ears are a reliable guide to what's real, right? In, in, in some sense. And of course it's not infallible. Um, we have auditory hallucinations or we have, um, uh, cases in which it's not clear so like in in, in um, when there's lots of noise going on it's difficult to pick up particular noises just like the sight when um, in in poor lighting or in a long distance our sight becomes less reliable but that doesn't matter we, we still think that in in the right settings we have reliable um, access to uh, reality through these sense modalities right but but what's important in this case what's what I'm trying to draw out with this example is uh, if I gain a new faculty like hearing I can confirm it independently and then eventually it will be justified in its own right. I won't need to confirm with my eyes. I can know just from hearing that I'm, I, you know, I, I can, I can learn things, right? I can, I can accept true beliefs, justified true beliefs, just from hearing eventually, right? Because um, as I confirm it independently, I, I, I come to realize that it's reliable. And then because it's reliable, it's, it can be justificatory in its own right. It can grant justification to beliefs. So I think the same thing goes on with revelation. I think we we experience revelation and and maybe so in some cases it seems pretty clear. I, I think people would often even even skeptics would generally agree, right? If an angel appears to you uh, and tells you something you don't know, uh, that, that turns out to be true, a prophecy of some kind. I think most people would say, yep, that's in its own right justificatory, right? That's that's um, you accept it. You're you're uh, it's it's permissible that you accept that experience is veridical, uh, and 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 so. Um, in other forms, right? So we might feel feel a certain impression. I feel that I ought to do this thing, right? Or I, I uh, knowledge comes to my mind, and you know, maybe I'm initially not sure if it's from God or not. Um, so those sorts of things that that can be confused um, with uh, delusion or just regular feelings that we have, or with deception, maybe they initially need confirmatory experiences. And I think in the church, we get them, right? So, so the, the reason that I believe that I receive revelation is because I've had these confirmatory experiences. So maybe you receive knowledge that you couldn't have had otherwise that turns out to be right, right? Like I get this impression that um, a particular person in my ward, say, uh, is in a certain kind of trouble. I speak to them about it and it turns out that that's right. And I had no other way of knowing that. That's a confirmatory experience. Um, uh, maybe uh, each time I do something like read the Book of Mormon, I get a, a sense of peace. And, and realize that that's not phenomenally unique, right? A sense of peace can come from non-divine means, right? It, it could be just um, from, uh, you know, uh, from a particular kind of more mundane experience that I feel a sense of peace. Uh, you know, so, so that's that's not unique. But we could, let's say in, in particular religious settings, um, I come to believe that peace is a result of divine um, intervention, right? God, God sends me peace, right? Uh, and there are lots of, lots and lots of different ways that we have these spiritual experiences. 
but as they come to be confirmed through confirmatory experiences, we can come to identify them much more easily independently. We don't, I think it comes to the point, like just like with the hearing example, we don't need confirmatory experiences to say that they're reliable. So I can discern, uh, you know, so, so pe people who are converted to the doc gospel and have had years of experience of these things can eventually come to discern uh, what's a spiritual experience and what's not, right? Um, sometimes it's, I think there is like a, a phenomenally unique revelation feeling, if that makes sense. And sometimes, as I said, it's just, it's, it's feelings like joy and peace that we have otherwise, but we can know when they come from God. Um, and so that's, yeah, so that, that, that's basically uh, a sketch of a kind of answer. And I think that there's nothing particularly um, uh, philosophically controversial here. It, it's true that we can come to get these sorts of confirmatory experiences that can make certain faculties uh, reliable. And, and so, um, yeah, so, so, so I think the key here is people will sometimes, uh, in the very early stages of their spiritual journey, journey, expect they should be able to infallibly distinguish between revelation that's vertical and, and you know, kind of uh, experiences that look like it but aren't vertical. And that's not the way the gospel works. <laughs> uh, that's not the way God works. It's about growth and coming to know God and know the feeling of the spirit in such a way that we, we can reliably discern. Our epistemology, I think, does, is not committed to, nor need it be committed to, the idea that the very first time God speaks to our hearts, we know for a fact, infallibly, that it's God. I think sometimes the first time he speaks to our hearts, we can have, we can very reliably know, even without confirmatory experiences. Um, but over the course of our lives, we come to be able to identify the, the Spirit in such a way that revelation becomes, um, I would say, more reliable than anything else, right? I think that, that like, for instance, the prophet, right? Um, can trust promptings of the spirit and can discern them more reliably even than his than his eyes right or his ears um, and that's what's important but it's, it's about growth spiritually I think yeah I love that I love that you mentioned the idea of like maybe you have a feeling that you need to go do something for someone and you do something for them and you you find out that they were really struggling and that that really made a difference to them I think that's a case where like you're growing in that principle of revelation because you can kind of identify, okay, this is how I felt in that case. And then you have more confidence in that particular feeling per se. But I definitely think it is, it is complicated because heavenly father, like, or God, God is a, God's a person that deals with us like individually, each we're each his kids and he, he works with us differently. So I think it can, how I feel the spirit and how I feel revelation is going to be very different than how you feel revelation. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really excellent point. Um, for different people, it will be different. There are lots and lots of ways that God can communicate with us. And for some people, it's going to be that they're going to rarely, if ever, have a particular kind of experience that a certain other person might have all the time. Right. And that's really important. And one of the points I should have mentioned is, as you said, right. So sometimes we may have an impression to go do something and it turns out that that was, you know, um, we were right about a certain feeling we had about another person that we couldn't have done otherwise. Of course, that can be coincidence, right? It's it's like logically possible that that's coincidental. And that's, I think, what often people are worried about. They say, oh, well, you know, you felt like um, you were in need financially, and then suddenly you came into money that just barely covered your bills for that month. Uh, and so skeptics will say, well, that's coincidence. You, you interpret that as God intervening, and that's coincidental. So it doesn't count as a confirmatory experience. My point about saying it can be holistic, I think an individual can in certain circumstances be justified just on one instance alone and in saying that, that was God, right? Uh, but uh, sure, it's logically possible it's coincidental. The, the question is whether, uh, so you know, it could be coincidental that every time I open my eyes, I happen to see what's right, even though my eyes actually aren't 
uh, reliable, that could be possible, but nobody believes that. We all believe that um, when we, we look, we're seeing real things, right? It's just not coincidental. And so the point of this kind of confirmatory experience happening over time is that uh, for an individual, it can get to the point of where it would just be ridiculous to say it's coincidence, right? I believe that I've had so many experiences of God intervening in my life that I can't make sense of them all being coincidences. It would be absurd, just statistically absurd. And so it makes a lot more sense for me. And therefore I'm justified in saying that it's God intervening, that I have had spiritual experiences and that God works in my life. And, and that I'm saying that's, that's not just you're entitled to that. That's perfectly philosophically grounded, right? If you accept, um, yeah, I mean, basically that, that's, that's, that's not philosophically controversial, that as things happen more and more, you're justified in saying they're not coincidences. You're justified in saying these, these can justify knowledge. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of the idea with, with, with confirmatory experiences. You know, it can be different for different people, um, but there's no question of, what I'm addressing here is the in-principle objection. They're saying in-principle, um, these sorts of feelings couldn't ground knowledge. I'm saying that's just false. I think we can, we can show that there's a very plausible epistemic, epistemological case you can make that says this, this can at least in principle be reliable knowledge. Yeah. I also think like in Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord mentions the idea of like bringing the revelation to like our heart and our mind. And I think sometimes we maybe we, we have these feelings and I think sometimes the Lord will work just through our feelings. But I think oftentimes if we have those feelings and we kind of, we feel it in our mind as well, I think we can have a lot more confidence in that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we get propositional knowledge, knowledge of facts, right? About the nature of God, maybe the mysteries of heaven, like DNC six talks about, um, or yeah, like um, the fact, right? A propositional fact, you know, oh, this person in my ward is in trouble. Sometimes it's just a sense, right? Like a feeling in our hearts. Um, and yeah, as, as we develop spiritually, we come to identify all of these things and, and all of them can be reliable. We can all, I, I think eventually we can get to the point where we can, um, with a high degree of accuracy, identify, um, yeah, spiritual, vertical spiritual experiences from, from um, things that just look like it. Do you have any other insights on epistemology that you think would be helpful for our audience to understand? Yeah, so I think one key thing so some some people well let's say this so so i think often the narrative particularly from uh atheists but not exclusively so from like secular scholars is this kind of this faith and reason um clash right and so there's there's all these examples in history oh galileo attacked by the church you know and then oh the um uh debates over darwinism right um uh, you know, uh, you know, several years after after Darwin made his discovery, and 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 the the, the conflict between faith and reason, right? Uh, interestingly enough, actually, the historical cases given are often um, just wrong, right? So, so uh, Galileo's um, reception by the church was very positive. If you if you read, um, uh, this is kind of this is tangential, but uh, yeah, ba basically, um, scholars in the Catholic Church were really open to and and wanted to verify what what Galileo said. Uh, there were independent reasons why he ended up uh, being branded a heretic. Um, and, and very early on, people who accepted uh, Darwin's findings were often uh, deeply religious, right? Although it's true that, you know, the young, young earth and creationists today will want to reject evolution. Um, but yeah, so, so this idea of a dichotomy between faith and reason, uh, some atheists, or many atheists will say that it's there. And some Christians will say it's there too. They say, well, actually, we need to have faith in, in, in the face of evidence, in the face of logic. Um, I think we're in the very fortunate position in our epistemology to say, nope. Uh, they're perfectly compatible, right? We want all that science has to tell us, right? We want all that uh, scholarship has to tell us. Uh, what people often um, 
what, what makes it possible, I think, often people say that there's a conflict is just not really understanding how this sort of inquiry takes place. So, uh, for instance, right, um, uh, a scholar, a biblical scholar might make uh, claims like that Isaiah was written by two or three people over a period of time that's actually incompatible with the Latter-day Saint view, right? So some, some actually many scholars believe that Isaiah, there's kind of a Deutero Isaiah written by, um, not by the prophet Isaiah, um, and it was written later actually than um, uh, Lehi left Jerusalem with his family, right? And so that would actually, that they're saying that's a challenge. So we have quotes from this section that they call Deutero Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, but historically that, is, that doesn't work out because um, uh, they they would have the, the records they would have had wouldn't have included these writings right so then they'd say oh that, you know case closed book of Mormon isn't isn't vertical um but uh, it, it's, it's too complicated to want to, for me to, to go into it here but essentially these people will have assumptions um that they may be justified in accepting but which make it possible for these conclusions to be reached um I, i'm talking very abstractly here, and i apologize for that that's not always very helpful um but essentially um yeah the underlying assumptions, which again, may be things that they've reached, you know, these maybe conclusions they've reached for, for good reasons, um, make it possible for these conclusions to be reached, like that Deuteronomy Isaiah, you know, is a thing, or that it was written later. Um, and so, yeah, long story short, <laughs> we believe all truth, uh, but that doesn't mean we accept the prevailing consensus amongst experts in a given field, right? We have commitments uh, in philosophy and in scripture and in history that are incompatible with the foundational commitments of these people. Um, and so we can give a case for why we accept these commitments um, that often people won't want to accept, uh, but that's okay. We're building a worldview. I, um, I, I'm not expressing myself very well here, but essentially the point is um, we, we don't have a worldview where logic and reason conflict with science and we're sorry, with, with faith and we need to just kind of give those up and accept faith regardless. We live in a worldview where we say um, faith and reason are perfectly compatible, but just the conclusions which people reach without the kind of underlying faith with, with the commitments we have, um, I think for rational reasons, uh, will lead them to conclusions incompatible with our faith, <laughs> if, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically uh, we're not afraid of science, right? Uh, or of, of, of scholarship of any kind. Uh, we, we, we absolutely think that uh, mundane methods will lead to truths. It's just that the, the way they go about it and the conclusions that they reach sometimes are based on, on assumptions that we just don't share. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where we we take science very seriously, but we also take revelation very seriously. And I think we're aware that sometimes revelation might be wrong, but sometimes science might be wrong as well. So I think that's really important to, to consider. Um, a while back, I had kind of a a concern with a certain um, biblical scholarship type thing. And I, I reached out to a teacher that I, I really respect. And he mentioned this idea kind of talking about, he kind of related it to the doctrine of the preexistence and how that's something that in the early Christian church and among many Catholics, they believed in the doctrine of the preexistence, but that doctrine was made into a heresy. So today you're not going to see other Christian churches with that doctrine. That's because essentially history is written by the winners of these arguments and such. And that will play into, and that will play in a factor into people's assumptions and such. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a very good example. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to ask two more questions and then we'll close, but do you have any advice for people that 
are currently in a faith crisis and are they're wrestling with various difficult issues right now and struggling with some doubts. Yeah. So I think that um, scholarship and, um, you know, the sort of research that apologists do, right. The great work that like uh, the interpretive foundation of fair Mormon do are excellent and they can uh, facilitate someone's overcoming a faith crisis. But ultimately, as I said, the foundation of our epistemology is revelatory. Ultimately, we, we have to seek through uh, prayer and through scriptural study to be converted, not just spiritually, but I think intellectually, like epistemically. Um, and so if faith crises, again, they, they can be certainly, I think in some cases, uh, uh, enormously helped by um, the sort of uh, scholarly work that's being done by members of the church. But the best way to overcome a faith crisis is to seek to develop a relationship with Christ. And for different people that looks uh, different, right? So some, for some people, it's really the study of the scriptures that will really help them, right? For other people, it's prayer and trying to develop a personal relationship. For other people, it's just listening to what the prophets have to say, right? And reading and studying their words, the, the modern day prophets. Um, but but, but I, I, would, I would love it if um, members of the church, more than anyone, but also people outside the church, um, could just recognize kind of at least the basic outline of, of some of the things I've said today because so many people, even in the church, worry about our epistemology. And I think there's not, I mean, there are worries there, but it's not a foundational. There's no in principle problem with the way that we interact with the Lord uh, in kind of, in terms of knowledge claims. Um, and so I would say, worry less about the mechanics of it and strive to put yourself in a position where you can discern um, spiritual experiences from non-spiritual experiences, right? That's, I, I think that's the, the, the best advice that, that we can give to anyone. Don't expect to be able to tell immediately and infallibly when the Spirit's speaking to you. Study how the Spirit interacts with us in the, the words of the prophets and in the scriptures uh, and, and, and then get practice, right? It's, it's like, it's a muscle like any other. We have to exercise it to be able to, to use it well. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Reminds me of something that I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I was listening to an interfaith dialogue one time and there was this, really respectable evangelical pastor. And he used to be a member of the church and he was asked why he left the church. And he told them that there was a large focus on religion, but not enough of a focus on relationship with Christ. And for him, he found that elsewhere. And I think I've talked to a lot of people in this podcast that they've had different issues that they've struggled with that have triggered a faith crisis. And a lot of them haven't found answers that satisfy them yet but as they've connected with christ they know that this is where they're supposed to be right now so i love what you said about just connecting with christ i think that is so vital yeah i think there's, there's a really a, a point that was put wonderfully by dan ellsworth who you've had and you've had on the, the pod, podcast before um in a discussion about the book of abraham right so some people will look at a particular problem like the book of abraham and they'll say I cannot see a solution to this anywhere. I can't see a consistent way of reconciling this with the church's views. And so they say, well, if we can't reconcile it, necessarily the church must be false, right? That's what they say. That's what many people think that. And I'm not saying that's a, that's a really like irrational way of, of looking at things. Um, and so, so for, that's for different issues, right? Polygamy or for Book of Abraham, all, all sorts of controversial issues, people will will um, take that approach. And and Dan, what Dan Ellsworth said was, um, that I thought was really striking was, you know, it's okay if we don't find an answer to a particular question. Uh, the, the point is, the point of conversion to gospel is to be able to handle those sorts of questions. So 
Yeah, uh, if, if I it may, maybe to add to what I said, if, if I can have one thing be made clear to members of the church that I think will help a lot of people, it's that every single worldview, every single worldview has questions that they have either a really hard time answering or just cannot answer, right? So even even like um, just science generally, the, the, the big, you know, like physics, right? The, the foundational science um, currently can't reconcile quantum mechanics, like you know, the, the physics of very small particles and uh, relativistic physics, the, the kind of physics of really big objects. It's, it's currently totally incompatible. Um, and we just have currently no way of knowing how to answer that question. That doesn't mean we, we reject physics, right? Um, so if you have these spiritual experiences, they can justifiably, in, in like a philosophical sense, they can justify your knowledge. You can be rationally justified in accepting this worldview, even if there are specific questions that you cannot see an answer to. Um, and that, that's what's important, right? It, it, it's okay to, to, to have doubts, uh, to undergo a faith crisis, to struggle with particular questions. But the fact that questions exist doesn't, and I think even rationally doesn't, undermine um, the spiritual experiences that do ultimately ground our faith. Um, it can be that you can have these experiences and have knowledge, even in the face of being unable to answer even a lot of, of difficult questions. I love that. Thanks for bringing that up. I think realistically, whether it be branches of religion, different, um, like whether it be geology, physics, all, all fields, like there's going to be questions. No one has all the answers. So just because we can't answer everything right now, doesn't mean it, our belief needs to be abandoned. Um, I want to close with the question, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you? Yeah. Um, so as, as I said, kind of at the beginning, a lot of what the gospel of Jesus Christ means to me in everyday life is actually intellectual. I mean, I just love learning. Um, and I just, I, I, there's something so exhilarating about learning about the gospel. Um, uh, you know, whether that's the kind of foundational principles or the really deep doctrines and, and philosophy that's, that kind of underlies it all. Um, so in a sense, I mean, that's, that's a lot of, again, in, in kind of everyday life, what it means to me. Uh, but it is a lot bigger than that, right? Or it ought to be. Um, and that, I guess that's something that maybe I can say I struggle with is, is um, I've had really profound spiritual experiences, transformative experiences um, that mean a lot to me. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of feeling the power of the atonement in my life has been very powerful at times. Um, and, and that's, I think, uh, ultimately, uh, <laughs> well, I don't want to say ought to, but um you know, that, that personal relationship with Christ is what it means. Right? That's, that's the really, that, that's the, the, the good stuff. That's the important thing. Um, and so uh, for me, the kind of intellectual foundation is actually what facilitates my desire. Uh, my, it makes me, it, me able to have the desire to want to come closer to Christ. And so that's kind of the goal. Uh, but for me, um, yeah, a lot of what it means to me in everyday life is, is very intellectual. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, it's just so reassuring to know that I can be a much better person than I am, infinitely better than I am, right? To know that I can be more like Christ, that I can continue to improve myself um, to, you know, not, not only for my own sake, but to be able to help others as well. There's, there's so much satisfaction and joy that comes from bringing others to Christ. I, I do know that. Um, yeah, I, I, and so, I, yeah, I, 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 I love the, the, the possibility for improvement, for, for growth, that's a really powerful idea to me. 
Thank you for that, Joseph. And thank you for your comments. You've had a lot of great insights that I think will be really, really, really helpful to our audience. So thanks for being on. Yeah, I, I hope it is helpful. And, and thanks again so much for having me and for the work you do. Thank you. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next time. Because we see imperfectly in mortality, not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life.